maybe many different things come to mind. You probably even use that word in ways that different at different times. Certainly, when you tell your spouse that you love him or her, you mean something very different than when your kids say, I love that mac and cheese from Chick-fil-A. And when we turn to the Bible, we even get a, a bit of a different nuance about love at different times. But here in 1 Corinthians 13, we are thinking about the highest of loves. This is a divine kind of love. It doesn't find its source in human sinfulness, but it's modeled after God's love. This love is a gift of grace, an act of mercy. It's a determination for the highest good of the one that it loves. For consider with me, what is the outcome of God's love towards sinners? 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. God's love has taken enemies of him with an infinite debt of sin, and he has turned us into his children, no longer enemies, but fellow heirs with Christ. In God's work of redemption, there is this great reversal that has been enacted by the love of God. This kind of love is not concerned with how a person would respond. It's not concerned with what you might receive in return. It's not concerned what it costs you to give this kind of love. Now with those implications, you might say that this kind of love is impossible. No human can do such a thing. And indeed, connecting this with the character of God, it would be impossible for any of us to love like that. Except for the truth that when God changes our hearts, he pours into us his love with the Holy Spirit. So now we have this capacity to love like God loves. Theologians call this idea a communicable attribute. That's a really big word. You don't have to walk away from today remembering that word. But remember this, that God's love is a part of his character that he communicates to us. He shares that part of him with us. And we can then go and share his love with others. So God's people are like a conduit, like a pipeline from God to others of God's love. And so if what you call love doesn't find a parallel in the love of God, then what you call love is in fact not love. Because real love is in some way reflective of the love of God, or it's not genuine love. So consider these thoughts. Love is not a pit to fall into and fall out of. Love is much more purposeful. Love is not a childish dream which is confirmed by some sort of special kiss. Be careful of the animated movies that you watch. They don't convey a lot of biblical truth. Love is not a physical or a sexual experience. When you hear the word love used in the world around us, that's the intention many times. It's just this short-lived experience. But the Bible's expression of love is very different. Love is not tolerance. Though it tolerates a lot, tolerance all by itself in an unlimited capacity is not what the Bible means when it speaks of love. And when we think about love, we're not speaking of some, some product that fills up a tank that we have to keep us from falling into despair. 
our culture would tell us that love is more like a transaction. So if you want my love, you have to give me something. Love has been twisted into a simple investment that expects a return, a return of pleasure or companionship or identity or a better feeling about myself. And if that investment doesn't yield the expected return, then we, we want to liquidate our love and move on to someone else. But love is not a demand that we make upon others. Love is something we give to others. So in Romans 13, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. It's not our right to call in this debt, but it is certainly our obligation to pay this debt. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So last week we considered the priority of love from verses 1 through 3. Love is this fruit of the Spirit that is critical to everything that goes on within the church. I told you that the church at Corinth was operating in the, the strength of their own flesh, not depending on the Spirit of the Lord. And so rather than building up the body, the church around them, they were aiming to, to perform a show. They were like actors on a stage demanding attention for their performance. Their actions in the church were not marked by love, but their own selfish ambition. And we determined that love is the ground for which everything in the church must spring. All the ministry, all the service, all the care that goes on in the church, it must come from this ground of love, this motive of love. And anyone who operates in any other way without being motivated by love is then what verse 2 says, nothing. This week we're going to think about the personality of love in verses 4 through 7. If love is so critical, then we need to know what love is like. And Paul doesn't leave us hanging here. He's, he's built up this demand for love, and now he's telling us the character of love. If we need it so badly, then how do we know if we have it? Here is the personality, the, the characteristics of this important quality. 
And there's no better example to look to to find out what true love is than to think about our Lord Jesus Christ who said greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he did just that. Friends, if you don't know the Lord, if you are not a Christian, then consider that God has shown to mankind the ultimate form of love. God's love indeed took the perfect man, Jesus, all the way to the cross for sinners like you and me. And if you are trusting in Christ, then consider that godly love in you will lead you to sacrifice even your best interests for the good of another. And even as I use words like sacrifice, you may have a hesitant thought in your mind. Each of us as humans finds a roadblock here. There's a check in our spirit maybe. We think sacrifice, what is, what is he going to say? What, is, what sacrifice does love demand of me? And here is the, the hurdle that we all must face. We are all alike in this. We may reasonably think that the opposite of love is what? Say it. Hate. That may be the first thing that comes to mind. But I wanted to point your attention last week that the hurdle to love is much more subtle than that big word hate. The greatest hurdle for each of us to performing godly kind of love is this problem of self selfishness. This is where the Corinthian church was stuck. They didn't just need a clearer definition of the word love. They needed to stop thinking about themselves and start loving people. What a timely passage this is for us. We're in a world where we hear a lot about self-care, self-help, self-actualization, self-respect. The list could go on. We might say that we are in the midst of a culture of the false religion of selfism. But here in 1 Corinthians 13, to put on true love is to simultaneously put off self-centeredness. So, church, do you want to be countercultural? Do you want to live a rebellious life in a good way? Stop focusing on self and start loving others. Because the world's not doing that. And indeed, we should love because our Lord Jesus said, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So out of the 30 one another commandments in the New Testament, you know what the one, which one tops the list? Love one another. Now it's interesting, number two on that list is greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a topic for another sermon not going to go there. Just thought you might like to know. Well, this week again, we're going to get into some very personal thoughts. And these verses should lead you to consider yourself very personally. How do you interact with the people you call brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you relate to the people in your church? But love is not partial. It doesn't happen just in the body of the church. Love for believers happens as a lifestyle. So you really could think, how do you relate to all people? How do you interact with your fellow people? In these four verses, Paul describes to us this thing called love like a diamond with 15 different facets. And we can turn this diamond in our thinking and see what this divine gem is like 
from many different uh, perspectives, if you will. And he describes to us this thing called love with not so much commands as, as verbs, <laughs> as actions. He's describing what love does. So each of these 15 descriptions is really an action verb. Love does do this. Love does not do this. We're familiar with the words of James that faith without works is dead. In a similar way, love without action may be dead also. So husbands, if your wife knows that you love her only by your words, which are not followed by actions, you're not very convincing. When we get to the end of these verses today, there's not one person among us who is thoughtful, who won't think, boy, do I fall short. Each of us will find ourselves wanting at the end of this standard for love. But let that conviction, let that feeling raise up in you also this following desire of, boy, do I want to love more. I want to love the way that Christ has loved me. Now, don't get worried. There are 15 descriptions here, but the sermon doesn't have 15 points. I want to put these under four major headings. And I want to talk about all of them, but not spend an extended amount of time with any of them. What is love like? This is our goal for this morning, to describe the personality of love. When you think about love, how does love act? Brothers and sisters, God has put love in our hearts, and so this is the way that we should be acting. You could replace the word love with yourself and test if this describes you or not. Number one, love imitates God. If you could summarize God's interactions with the whole world of people, and especially his people, Christians, then you would choose this one word, love. But if you had to branch out and pick two words, the next two words that you should choose are the first two qualities in verse 4. Love is patient and love is kind. These are the best two words other than love to describe how God has interacted with people. We put active words to this. Love is patient. It also means love suffers long. Love waits patiently. The Old Testament has described God as slow to anger. And if translators had connected the words exactly as they were originally written, it would tell us that God is long-nosed. That's very edifying to you, isn't it? It's good that they didn't use that phrase because we would all wonder what in the world does it mean. But paint yourself a picture of what God might be like if he had a long nose It's not telling us that he has this extended feature on the front of his face. It's describing to us that when God has this wrath against sin, when he has anger against sin, the smoke of this anger takes a very long time for it to breathe out into the world around us. God is very patient. He controls his response to man's sin. Here in the New Testament, the word for patience is literally long wrath. Not that wrath lasts a long time, but that wrath takes a long time to come. Love is not short-tempered. It doesn't have a short fuse. Love doesn't find itself blowing a gasket, if you will, very quickly. 
when people around you are aggravating you, maybe even incessantly, whether they express a difference of opinion, maybe they even sin against you and cast some great offense towards you, if you will love like God loves, then you will be very patient. You will not be quick to get revenge. You will value forgiveness and forbearance more highly than retaliation. Like Stephen, who prayed even while his attackers were throwing stones to kill him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Or like our Lord Jesus on the cross, who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Love is also kind, as God is kind. Kindness is a graciousness, a friendliness. It is working out goodness towards other people, even in the midst of aggravation and even great offense. Love doesn't simply just grin and bear it. Love returns good, even for evil. In Romans 12, 21, Paul writes, Do not be overcome with evil, there's patience, but overcome evil with good. There's proactive kindness. One of the most convicting parables for me to read in the Gospels is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Maybe you're familiar with it. The servant owed his master 10,000 talents. That's an unforgivable, an unmeasurable, an unrepayable amount of money. One talent equals 20 years of pay. And he owed 10,000 talents. In other words, he is never going to repay this debt. So when his master calls in this debt, what does the servant do? He begs him, please be patient with me. I'll repay every penny. But they both knew full well that would never happen. Master, the Bible says, had pity on his servant. And he actually forgave the servant's debt. What did the servant do? He didn't grovel and thank and praise the master. He immediately went out and found a servant who owed him 100 denarii and called in the debt. And by comparison, 100 denarii is about three months' wages. It's possible to repay such a debt. That servant said the same thing. Be patient with me and I will repay. But the first servant had no mercy and put him in prison until he would pay the full debt back. The master found out. Do you think he was happy? Absolutely not. He told the first servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Master didn't just show patience and extend the loan. The master showed great kindness and completely forgave the debt. What a picture of God's treatment of people like us. But then the servant used his master's kindness for his own gain. He failed to exercise this same kind of kindness. What a picture of the human heart. Friends, if you lack patience and kindness this morning, then pray to the Lord to give you patience and kindness. But beware, God doesn't zap you with Christian virtue. If you pray for patience and kindness, he's going to give you opportunities to practice patience and kindness. You know the thing about practice, if you don't get any better, you have to keep doing it? Maybe you recognize impatience because you haven't cultivated this virtue when God gives you opportunities. 
But I assure you, if you will pray for patience and kindness this morning, God will give you opportunities to exercise both patience and kindness before you ever leave the building. Because we are a church filled with people. What comes next in this passage is a list of things that love does not do. And in these things, we see the second big heading, love denies self. Love denies self. Now, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he was not, in fact, teaching us that we need to grow our love for ourselves so that we can love other people better. He was expressing exactly the opposite. We actually do love ourselves very well. And we need to use that paradigm as a template for how we love others. And Jesus did say, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So love, as the part of the Christian life, is a denial of self. Love will give up its own desires, give up its own self, selfish ambition for the sake of others. So love does not envy Love doesn't want what others have, even if they have to give it up for me to have it. But beware, envy is much greater than just stuff. There's jealousy over relationships and opportunities and even spiritual gifts like in the Corinthian church. Envy is simply a dissatisfied lifestyle. All told the church at Corinth that jealousy was causing strife among them, and jealousy will always cause strife wherever it goes. James says that this kind of jealousy is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Rather than envy, love is not angry at the successes of other people. Actually, it's glad for the well-being of others. When the people around you find goodness out of life, when good things happen to them, what's your immediate response? If it's rejoicing with them, that is a sign of love. If it's immediate jealousy, pray for love. Envy is a, ultimately dissatisfaction with God's will for your life. As if you see a better way that God hasn't provided for you. And that envy will turn into angst against other people. On the flip side, love doesn't just not envy, it also does not boast. Think about what is the purpose of boasting. It is to grow envy in other people, right? Speaking in a way that others might envy you, causing others to be dissatisfied with their lot in life and showing them that, that if they had your lot, they would be much more satisfied. Where envy is downvoting the successes of others in your mind, boasting is upvoting your own successes. But they both have the same effect. Both envy and boasting treat relationships like a competition where you always have to be winning, even at the expense of other people. On the one hand, the church at Corinth was looking around and seeing all these people that had these great gifts. They were doing great things. They were very proud in their presentation and, and they were growing in this envy. I want to do, be able to do the same things that everyone else at this church is doing. For those who had these great gifts, they were flaunting them so that all those who didn't have the gifts would think, I want that. Envy and boasting were going around, but all the while Christ was neither honored nor thanked. 
Verse 4 goes on, love is not arrogant. Heard these words before, it's like being puffed up with air, sticking out your chest so that others will see. Love is not that kind of attitude, desiring praise and applause. This arrogance is just the way of thinking behind the action of boasting. If you think arrogantly in your mind, then you will boast with your mouth. This is a loveless kind of attitude. Because arrogance draws away the attention where God would put the attention. God gives attention in the church to the preaching of the word and to prayer and to singing praises. But when those who are arrogant take those roles, they steal the attention for themselves and distract God's people from growing in the means of grace. Love is not arrogant because it wants what's best for the person it loves. If you want to distract others from what God thinks is best, you're not practicing love. Love is also not rude. Love is not rude. Love is instead considerate. Love considers the needs and the comforts of other people. Not raising up your own comforts and needs above others, but, but considering your neighbors. It's almost like having good manners and relationships. Now, does love demand that we know which side to put the fork and the knife on at the table? I don't believe that's what Paul is getting at. But love considers what other people think. Not to be a doormat to have their shoes wiped on you, but to be friendly. So doing things like offering your chair to someone in need may be a demonstration of love. Holding the door open for someone who's walking behind you might be a demonstration of love. Dressing modestly around people who may be tempted. Or adjusting your conversation so that you can offer grace to the people around you. That may be a demonstration of love. Because love doesn't consider itself first. Love denies self. Love gives away its preference for the good of others. And so love also does not insist on its own way. There in verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. So it's not seeking itself. It's not self-seeking. The sin in our hearts would want us to emphasize, what do I think? What do I feel? What pleases me? What feeds my self-interests? But love would say, put my self-interests aside. In our day, the trap of the world would flip that on its head. Everyone out there fits into some intersected status where there are oppressors who want to take things from others, and there are victims who want to claim justice and demand that things are given back to them. But the love of God that is in Christians refuses both of those ideas, never insisting that I be taken care of. Any love that seeks its own interest is not the divine kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a Cupid kind of love from mythology. Now, don't think Cupid, the little squishy baby with wings. Cupid in mythology was a hunter carrying around his bow, slyly looking for something to to attack so that he could get his desires fulfilled. Now, it's a totally different question to ask, should I provide for those in need? And love would say, absolutely, yes. 1 Corinthians 10.24 tells us, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And this is precisely the contrast that Paul is making in this passage. Love serves his neighbor. Love does not demand that my neighbor serve me. And society today has this whole idea backwards. 
when things don't go your way, you're probably like the rest of us. You're not glad about it. But how do you respond? Verse 5 says that love is not irritable. It's not irritated. It's not easily provoked. The picture here is like being pricked with a thousand needles when someone aggravates you. If irritation describes how you respond, it's probably not a matter of the irritant. It's probably a matter of a deficiency of love. Irritation easily leads into the next quality of being resentful. So love is also not resentful. Now, if you think back to elementary school, every elementary student loves to be the monitor, right? To be the person who gets to write down the names of everyone who's breaking all the rules. And if they're really good, they might have 100 checks past it if they took very good notes. But that sort of pattern is terrible for real relationships. Here in verse 5, love is not resentful. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is a very important quality because this is exactly the way that God has treated his people. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it says that God was not counting their trespasses against them. Therefore, God is forgiving. He takes away our debt. He wipes out the record of our wrongs. Now, resentfulness and holding grudges, let me tell you, it really does a lot more harm to your own soul than it does to the one that you're bitter against. But that's a secondary issue. Primarily, resentfulness is just not love. Resentfulness is a denial of God's forgiveness. God doesn't treat you that way. He doesn't remind you from day to day. Do you remember that time? You were a jerk. Oh, and then you did it again. Don't forget, you're really not that good of a person. You're terrible. No, accusation is not God's practice. Accusation is the devil's hobby. If you face those kinds of thoughts, that's not God, that's Satan. God is one who takes our iniquities and throws them into the depths of the sea. Resentfulness also is really just petty. It's not a sign of maturity, it's a sign of a lack of love. And if you face this temptation to keep a record of wrongs, let me encourage you, read great passages of Scripture like Psalm 103, Read the end of Micah 7. Read Romans 8. I'll say this again if you want to write them down. Psalm 103, Micah 7, Romans 8. And consider how God has fully forgiven his people. And let that forgiveness compel you to be forgiving towards others. Number three, love is no cause for stumbling. Love is no cause for stumbling. In verse 6, we read, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not encourage or delight in sin, even in the sin of others. Now, rejoicing at wrongdoing could look like teenagers engaging in a form of peer pressure. You know what that's like, one teenager, young person. I mean, this could happen to adults too. What am I talking about? One one person encourages another to do something wrong for whatever reason. Maybe they want to enjoy and see what happens. Maybe they want to reap the benefits of another person's sin. Or this kind of rejoicing in, in uh, wrongdoing could look like a cutthroat work environment where one guy is, is glad about another person's failures and even his errors so that, so that he can be raised in status 
in the company. But love doesn't take either position. It doesn't rejoice in wrongs. Either encouraging someone to to do wrong or, or being glad that someone has done wrong. Neither of those perspectives are love. On the contrary, love rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't celebrate sin. It celebrates the truth. Now here's the aspect of love that might cause boldness in you. We must not think that love avoids all confrontation at all costs because love isn't satisfied with unrighteousness in the one that it loves. Rejoicing with the truth sometimes means risking your own reputation as you speak in love. And I recognize that a sermon like this and a passage like this may lead some of us to think that that Christians have to be weak. If we're going to love, we have to be weak people. But that's a great misunderstanding. Love isn't simply meant for weak people where the strong people have to escape the church and the pressures to be soft. None of us should be soft. Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians, the end of this very letter, in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then he says, and let all that you do be done in love. Strength and courage and endurance and love go together. So love is not necessarily weak. In fact, I could present a very good case that in order to love like this, you must be strong. The strength of character that these actions require the great strength. And it may be that those who are weak in character have actually the harder time of loving. Let me show you in verse 7 that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's this attitude of hopeful endurance with other people's issues. Whether they're small aggravations or big sins against you. Love has a hopeful endurance. Other people without love would give up or give in or go away. But love sticks around and waits for the best to work out. So love bears all things. It takes others' annoyances and it puts up with them. They're just not that important to bring up. And even when there is sin, the worst kind of sin, love bears it. Love covers up that sin, holds it in. Not to say that it's right, but to endure it. By the way, here's a good case for there is no love in gossip. There's no love in talking about others behind their backs. Love seeks to cover over the faults of others, not spread them around. Love doesn't doesn't want to justify sin, but it wants to protect the sinner from further ridicule and scorn. And as love bears all things, then love also believes all things. Love believes that maybe, just maybe, the person that you're loving really doesn't have the worst case scenario in mind for you. Maybe he really doesn't have ill will against you. That's just his rough personality. Maybe he's not really out to get you. Maybe you just need to be patient with him. And even if he is out to get you, maybe, just maybe, if you can endure, then God will soften his heart. He'll use you as an example of great love. Love believes all things. It believes that God can and will turn things around, even for the worst of sinners. 
as love bears all things and believes all things, it also hopes all things. It hopes that in the end, God is going to work out good in every situation. That maybe in all of these trials, God will work out good. That the relationship will be restored, that the problems will seem to fade, that the aggravation will turn out to be not that big of a deal, that sinners would repent, turn to be faithful to Christ, make amends where they have made offenses. Church, I'm not cloudy to think that these types of attitudes are easy. And over time, these attitudes of love, these actions of love will grow more and more difficult. But love doesn't stop with those. The last description here is love endures all things. So when the annoyances become trials, when, when bothersome people become thorns in the flesh, when the people who you used to call close friends seem to become your worst enemies, and they cause suffering and grief, when there seems to be no end in sight for these problems, love, like God's love, endures. So love indeed does have strength. Love has thick skin and broad shoulders and a hearty spirit and good lungs. Love is protective and durable and optimistic and hopeful and long-lasting. And if you find yourself struggling with someone wanting to love, thinking, I'm not sure that I can make it, consider no one better than the Lord Jesus Christ. John 13, verse 1, tells us when Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus endured the cross and the shame and the persecution, all of it, all the way to the end. Our Lord exemplified the very principle of love we're speaking about. Love is the victor over the selfish spirit of our age. It's the character of God working out in his children. So I ask you this morning, do you demonstrate this kind of love for others? Do you put yourself aside and consider others as more significant than yourself? And this love absolutely does not come naturally. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person renewed by God. If you are resting in your own power to work out this kind of love, let me tell you, it will not happen. This is a question of not can you do better at love. This is a question of is God's character working out of you because you have a changed heart. You don't need to pray, Lord, make me a better lover. You can pray that. But a better prayer might be, Lord, make me more like you. So I ask you, has your heart been changed? God's love, his kindness, his patience, he shows in order to lead people, people like you and me, to repentance. He has demonstrated his love so that you and I would turn from our sin and trust in him alone for all of our eternal good. Christians, this kind of love is critical to the church. We are a body of people who, more than any other, we understand and have experienced the, the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. And if we have understood and experienced it, then surely we are the ones to demonstrate it. And we, better than anyone else, except for maybe Jesus, understand the struggles of our fellow people. And love 
is the fruit of this knowledge. God has poured his love into our hearts that we might then pour that love out to others. If this is the personality of love, God in a person, does this describe you? Do you love? Pray with me. Father, we are overwhelmed by the thought that first of all, you would love us. That you look upon people and you see angry, rebellious sinners, enemies who would rather not know about you, rather not please you, rather not serve you. And yet, in your long patience and in your great kindness, you have sought out and acted out and worked out what is best for us, sending your son to die for our sin. Now, Lord, you exercise great love in being patient with us until we finally make it to being like your son. Lord, that is a grand task. That is a great change that you must work out. We are confident, Lord, that, that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it And as we walk one day to the next, as we aim to love as you have loved us, you strengthen us for this work. Let us not rest in ourselves, doing this work on our own as if we can do it because we're something special, but let us trust you. Let us depend on the Holy Spirit that we might show to others the same great love you have shown to us. May it be all for the glory of your name not for our own. Christ in our Let's go ahead and stand. Dread.